Section 28 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books, edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to Poems, 1815, by William Wordsworth. The powers requisite for the production of poetry are, first, those of observation and description, i.e., the ability to observe with accuracy things as they are in themselves, and with fidelity to describe them, unmodified by any passion or feeling existing in the mind of the describer, whether the things depicted be actually present to the senses, or have a place only in the memory. This power, though indispensable to a poet, is one which he employs only in submission to necessity, and never for a continuance of time, as its exercise supposes all the higher qualities of the mind to be passive, and in a state of subjection to external objects, much in the same way as a translator or engraver ought to be to his original. Secondly, sensibility, which, the more exquisite it is, the wider will be the range of a poet's perceptions, and the more will he be incited to observe objects, both as they exist in themselves, and as reacted upon by his own mind. The distinction between poetic and human sensibility has been marked in the character of the poet delineated in the original preface. Thirdly, reflection, which makes the poet acquainted with the value of actions, images, thoughts, and feelings, and assists the sensibility in perceiving their connection with each other. Fourthly, imagination and fancy, to modify, to create, and to associate. Fifthly, invention, by which characters are composed out of materials supplied by observation, whether of the poet's own heart and mind, or of external life and nature, and such incidents and situations produced as are most impressive to the imagination, and most fitted to do justice to the characters, sentiments, and passions which the poet undertakes to illustrate and lastly judgment to decide how and where and in what degree each of these faculties ought to be exerted so that the less shall not be sacrificed to the greater nor the greater slighting the less arrogate to its own injury more than its due by judgment also is determined what are the laws and appropriate graces of every species of composition footnote as sensibility to harmony of numbers, and the power of producing it, are invariably attendants upon the faculties above specified, nothing has been said upon those requisites. And footnote. The materials of poetry, by these powers collected and produced, are cast, by means of various moulds, into diverse forms. The moulds may be enumerated, and the forms specified, in the following order. First, the narrative, including the epopoeia, the historic poem, the tale, the romance, the mock heroic, and, if the spirit of Homer will tolerate such neighborhood, that dear production of our days, the metrical novel. Of this class the distinguishing mark is that the narrator, however liberally his speaking agents be introduced, is himself the source from which everything primarily flows epic poets, in order that their mode of composition may accord with the elevation of their subject, present themselves as singing from the inspiration of the muse, Anavirumque cano, 
but this is a fiction in modern times of slight value. The Iliad or the Paradise Lost would gain little in our estimation by being chanted. The other poets who belong to this class are commonly content to tell their tale, so that of the whole it may be affirmed that they neither require nor reject the accompaniment of music. Secondly, the dramatic, consisting of tragedy, historic drama, comedy, and mask, in which the poet does not appear at all in his own person, and where the whole action is carried on by speech and dialogue of the agents, music being admitted only incidentally and rarely. The opera may be placed here, inasmuch as it proceeds by dialogue, though depending, to the degree that it does, upon music, it has a strong claim to be ranked with the lyrical. The characteristic and impassioned epistle, of which Ovid and Pope have given examples, considered as a species of monodrama, may, without impropriety, be placed in this class. Thirdly, the lyrical, containing the hymn, the ode, the elegy, the song, and the ballad, in all which, for the production of their full effect, an accompaniment of music is indispensable. Fourthly, the idyllium, descriptive chiefly either of the processes and appearances of external nature, as the seasons of Thompson, or of characters, manners, and sentiments, as are Shenstone's schoolmistress, the cotter's Saturday night of Burns, the twa dogs of the same author, or of these in conjunction with the appearances of nature, as most of the pieces of Theocritus, the Allegro and Penseroso of Milton, Beattie's Minstrels, Goldsmith's Deserted Village. The epitaph, the inscription, the sonnet, most of the epistles of poets writing in their own persons, and all loco-descriptive poetry, belonging to this class. Fifthly, didactic, the principal object of which is direct instruction, as the poem of Lucretius, the Georgics of Virgil, the Fleece of Dyer, Mason's English Garden, etc. And lastly, philosophical satire, like that of Horace and Juvenal, personal and occasional satire rarely comprehending sufficient of the general in the individual to be dignified with the name of poetry. Out of the three last has been constructed a composite order, of which Young's Night Thoughts and Cowper's Task are excellent examples. It is deducible from the above that poems apparently miscellaneous may with propriety be arranged either with reference to the powers of mind predominant in the production of them, or to the mould in which they are cast, or lastly, to the objects to which they relate. From each of these considerations, the following poems have been divided into classes, which, that the work may more obviously correspond with the course of human life, and for the sake of exhibiting in it the three requisites of a legitimate whole, a beginning, a middle, and an end, have been also arranged, as far as it was possible, according to an order of time, commencing with childhood, and terminating with old age, death, and immortality. My guiding wish was, that the small pieces of which these volumes consist, thus discriminated, might be regarded under a twofold view, as composing an entire work within themselves, and as adjuncts to the philosophical poem, the recluse. This arrangement has long presented itself habitually to my own mind. 
nevertheless i should have preferred to scatter the contents of these volumes at random if i had been persuaded that by the plan adopted anything material would be taken from the natural effect of the pieces individually on the mind of the unreflecting reader i trust there is a sufficient variety in each class to prevent this while to him who reads with reflection the arrangement will serve as a commentary unostentatiously directing his attention to my purposes both particular and general but as i wish to guard against the possibility of misleading by this classification it is proper first to remind the reader that certain poems are placed according to the powers of mind in the author's conception predominant in the production of them predominant which implies the exertion of other faculties in less degree where there is more imagination than fancy in a poem it is placed under the head of imagination and vice versa both the above classes might without impropriety have been enlarged from that consisting of poems founded on the affections as might this latter from those and from the class proceeding from sentiment and reflection the most striking characteristics of each piece mutual illustration variety and proportion have governed me throughout none of the other classes except those of fancy and imagination require any particular notice but a remark of general application may be made all poets except the dramatic have been in the practice of feigning that their works were composed to the music of the harp or lyre with what degree of affectation this has done in modern times i leave to the judicious to determine for my own part i have not been disposed to violate probability so far or to make such a large demand upon the reader's charity some of these pieces are essentially lyrical and therefore cannot have their due force without a supposed musical accompaniment but in much the greatest part as a substitute for the classic lyre or romantic harp i require nothing more than an animated or impassioned recitation adapted to the subject poems however humble in their kind if they be good in that kind cannot read themselves the law of long syllable and short must not be so inflexible the letter of metre must not be so impassive to the spirit of versification as to deprive the reader of all voluntary power to modulate in subordination to the sense the music of the poem in the same manner as his mind is left at liberty and even summoned to act upon its thoughts and images but though the accompaniment of a musical instrument be frequently dispensed with the true poet does not therefore abandon his privilege distinct from that of the mere prose man he murmurs near the running brooks a music sweeter than their own let us come now to the consideration of the words fancy and imagination as employed in the classification of the following poems a man says an intelligent author quote, has imagination in proportion as he can distinctly copy in idea the impressions of sense it is the faculty which images within the mind the phenomena of sensation a man has fancy in proportion as he can call up connect or associate at pleasure these internal images greek phantasian is to cause to appear so as to complete ideal representations of absent objects imagination is the power of depicting and fancy of evoking and combining 
the imagination is formed by patient observation the fancy by a voluntary activity in shifting the scenery of the mind the more accurate the imagination the more safely may a painter or a poet undertake a delineation or a description without the presence of the objects to be characterized the more versatile the fancy the more original and striking will be the decorations produced end quote. british synonyms discriminated by w taylor is not this as if a man should undertake to supply an account of a building and be so intent upon what he had discovered of the foundation as to conclude his task without once looking up at the superstructure here as in other instances throughout the volume the judicious author's mind is enthralled by entomology he takes up the original word as his guide and escort and too often does not perceive how soon he becomes its prisoner without liberty to tread in any path but that to which it confines him it is not easy to find out how imagination thus explained differs from distinct remembrance of images or fancy from quick and vivid recollection of them each is nothing more than a mode of memory if the two words bear the above meaning and no other what term is left to designate that faculty of which the poet is all compact he whose eyes glances from earth to heaven whose spiritual attributes body forth what his pen is prompt in turning to shape or what is left to characterize fancy as insinuating herself into the heart of objects with creative activity imagination in the sense of the word as giving title to a class of the following poems has no reference to images that are merely a faithful copy existing in the mind of absent external objects but is a word of higher import denoting operations of the mind upon those objects and processes of creation or of composition governed by certain fixed laws i proceed to illustrate my meaning by instances a parrot hangs from the wires of his cage by his beak or by his claws or a monkey from the bough of a tree by his paws or his tail each creature does so literally and actually in the first eclogue of virgil the shepherd thinking of the time when he is to take leave of his farm thus addresses his goats non ego vos posteic viridi projectus in antro dumosa pendere procul de rupe videbo halfway down hangs one who gathers samphir is the well-known expression of shakespeare delineating an ordinary image upon the cliffs of dover in these two instances is a slight exertion of the faculty which i denominate imagination in the use of one word neither the goats nor the samphire gatherer do literally hang as does the parrot or the monkey but presenting to the senses something of such an appearance the mind in its activity for its own gratification contemplates them as hanging as when far off at sea a fleet descried hangs in the clouds by equinoctial winds close sailing from bengala or the isles of ternati or tidori whence merchants bring their spicy drugs they on the trading flood through the wide ethiopian to the cape ply stemming nightly toward the pole so seemed far off the flying fiend here is the full strength of the imagination involved in the word hangs and exerted upon the whole image first the fleet an aggregate of many ships is represented as one mighty person 
whose track we know and feel is upon the waters but taking advantage of its appearance to the senses the poet dares to represent it as hanging in the clouds both for the gratification of the mind in contemplating the image itself and in reference to the motion and appearance of the sublime objects to which it is compared from impressions of sight we shall pass to those of sound which as they must necessarily be of a less definite character shall be selected from these volumes over his own sweet voice the stock dove broods of the same bird his voice was buried among trees yet to be come at by the breeze o cuckoo shall i call thee bird or but a wandering voice the stock dove is said to coo a sound well imitating the note of the bird but by the intervention of the metaphor broods the affections are called in by the imagination to assist in marking the manner in which the bird reiterates and prolongs her soft note as if herself delighting to listen to it and participating of a still and quiet satisfaction like that which may be supposed inseparable from the continuous process of incubation his voice was buried among the trees a metaphor expressing the love of seclusion by which this bird is marked and characterizing its note as not partaking of the shrill and the piercing and therefore more easily deadened by the intervening shade yet a note so peculiar and withal so pleasing that the breeze gifted with that love of the sound which the poet feels penetrates the shades in which it is entombed and conveys it to the ear of the listener shall i call thee bird or but a wandering voice this concise interrogation characterizes the seeming ubiquity of the voice of the cuckoo and dispossesses the creature almost of a corporeal existence the imagination being tempted to this exertion of her power by a consciousness in the memory that the cuckoo is almost perpetually heard throughout the season of spring but seldom becomes an object of sight thus far of images independent of each other and immediately endowed by the mind with properties that do not inhere in them upon an incitement from properties and qualities the existence of which is inherent and obvious these processes of imagination are carried on either by conferring additional properties upon an object or abstracting from it some of those which it actually possesses and thus enabling it to react upon the mind which hath performed the process like a new existence i pass from the imagination acting upon an individual image to a consideration of the same faculty employed upon images in a conjunction by which they modify each other the reader has already had a fine instance before him in the passage quoted from virgil where the apparently perilous situation of the goat hanging upon the shaggy precipice is contrasted with that of the shepherd contemplating it from the seclusion of the cavern in which he lies stretched at ease and in security take these images separately and how unaffecting the picture compared with that produced by their being thus connected with and opposed to each other as a huge stone is sometimes seen to lie couched on the bald top of an eminence wonder to all who do the same espy by what means it should thither come and whence so that it seems a thing endued with sense like a sea-beast crawled forth which on a shelf of rock or sand reposeth there to sun himself such seemed this man 
not all alive or dead, nor all asleep, in his extreme old age. Motionless as a cloud the old man stood, that heareth not the loud winds when they call, and moveth altogether if it move at all. In these images, the conferring, the abstracting, and the modifying powers of the imagination, immediately and mediately acting, are all brought into conjunction. The stone is endowed with something of the power of life to approximate it to the sea-beast, and the sea-beast stripped of some of its vital qualities to assimilate it to the stone. Which intermediate image is thus treated for the purpose of bringing the original image, that of the stone, to a nearer resemblance to the figure and condition of the aged man, who is divested of so much of the indications of life and motion as to bring him to the point where the two objects unite and coalesce in just comparison. After what has been said, the image of the cloud need not be commented upon. Thus far of an endowing or modifying power, but the imagination also shapes and creates, and how? by innumerable processes, and in none does it more delight than in that of consolidating numbers into unity, and dissolving and separating unity into number, alterations proceeding from and governed by a sublime consciousness of the soul in her own mighty and almost divine powers. Recur to the passage already cited from Milton, when the compact fleet, as one person, has been introduced, sailing from Bengala, they, i.e. the merchants, representing the fleet resolved into a multitude of ships, ply their voyage across the extremities of the earth. So, referring to the word as in the commencement, seemed the flying fiend, the image of his person acting to recombine the multitude of ships into one body, the point from which the comparison set out. So seemed, and to whom seemed, to the heavenly muse who dictates the poem, to the eye of the poet's mind, and to that of the reader, present at one moment in the wide Ethiopian, and in the next in the solitudes, then first broken in upon, of the infernal regions. Modo me Thebes, modo ponit Athenus. Here again this mighty poet, speaking of the Messiah going forth to expel from heaven the rebellious angels, attended by ten thousand thousand saints, he onward came, far off his coming shone. The retinue of saints and the person of the Messiah himself, lost almost and merged in the splendor of that indefinite abstraction, his coming. As I do not mean here to treat this subject further than to throw some light upon the present volumes, and especially upon one division of them, I shall spare myself and the reader the trouble of considering the imagination as it deals with thoughts and sentiments, as it regulates the composition of characters, and determines the course of actions. I will not consider it, more than I have already done by implication, as that power which, in the language of one of my most esteemed friends, quote, draws all things to one, which makes things animate or inanimate, beings with their attributes, subjects with their accessories, take one color and serve to one effect. Quote. Footnote. Charles Lamb upon the genius of Hogarth. End footnote. The grand storehouses of enthusiastic and meditative imagination, of poetical, as contradistinguished from human and dramatic imagination, 
are the prophetic and lyrical parts of the Holy Scriptures, and the works of Milton, to which I cannot forbear to add to those of Spencer. I select these writers in preference to those of ancient Greece and Rome, because the anthropomorphitism of the pagan religion subjected the minds of the greatest poets in those countries too much to the bondage of definite form, from which the Hebrews were preserved by their abhorrence of idolatry. This abhorrence was almost as strong in our great epic poet, both from circumstance of his life and from the constitution of his mind. However imbued the surface might be with classical literature, he was a Hebrew in soul, and all things tended in him towards the sublime. Spencer, of a gentler nature, maintained his freedom by aid of his allegorical spirit, at one time inciting him to create persons out of abstractions, and at another, by a superior effort of genius, to give the universality and permanence of abstractions to his human beings, by means of attributes and emblems that belong to the highest moral truths and the purest sensations, of which his character of Una is a glorious example. Of the human and dramatic imagination, the works of Shakespeare are an inexhaustible source. I tax not you, ye elements, with unkindness, I never gave you kingdoms, called you daughters. And if, bearing in mind the many poets distinguished by this prime quality, whose names I omit to mention, yet justified by recollection of the insults which the ignorant, the incapable, and the presumptuous have heaped upon these and my other writings, I may be permitted to anticipate the judgment of posterity upon myself, I shall declare, censurable I grant, if the notoriety of the fact above stated does not justify me, that I have given in these unfavorable times evidence of exertions of this faculty upon its worthiest objects, the external universe, the moral and religious sentiments of man, his natural affections, and his acquired passions, which have the same ennobling tendency as the productions of men in this kind worthy to be holden in undying remembrance. To the mode in which fancy has already been characterized as the power of evoking and combining, or as my friend Mr. Coleridge has styled it, the aggregative and associative power, my objection is only that the definition is too general. To aggregate and to associate, to evoke and to combine, belong as well to the imagination as to the fancy but either the materials evoked and combined are different, or they are brought together under a different law, and for a different purpose. Fancy does not require that the materials which she makes use of should be susceptible of change in their constitution from her touch, and, where they admit of modification, it is enough for her purpose if it be slight, limited, and evanescent directly the reverse of these are the desires and demands of the imagination she recoils from everything but the plastic the pliant and the indefinite she leaves it to fancy to describe queen mab as coming in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman having to speak of nature she does not tell you that her gigantic angel was as tall as pompey's pillar much less that he was twelve cubits or twelve hundred cubits high, or that his dimensions equaled those of Tenerife or Atlas, because these, and if they were a million times as high it would be the same, are bounded. The expression is, his stature reached the sky, 
the illimitable firmament. When the imagination frames a comparison, if it does not strike on the first presentation a sense of the truth of the likeness from the moment it is perceived, grows and continues to grow upon the mind, the resemblance depending less upon outline of form and feature than upon expression and effect, less upon casual and outstanding than upon inherent and eternal properties. Moreover, the images invariably modify each other. The law under which the processes of fancy are carried on is as capricious as the accidents of things, and the effects are surprising, playful, ludicrous, amusing, tender, or pathetic, as the objects happen to be appositely produced or fortunately combined. Fancy depends upon the rapidity and profusion which with she scatters her thoughts and images. Trusting that their number, and the felicity with which they are linked together, will make amends for the want of individual value, or she prides herself upon the curious subtlety and the successful elaboration with which she can detect their lurking affinities. If she can win you over to her purpose, and impart to you her feelings, she cares not how unstable or transitory may be her influence, knowing that it will not be out of her power to resume it upon an apt occasion. But the imagination is conscious of an indestructible dominion. The soul may fall away from it, not being able to sustain its grandeur. But if once felt and acknowledged, by no act of any other faculty of the mind can it be relaxed, impaired, or diminished. Fancy is given to quicken and to beguile the temporal part of our nature, imagination to incite and to support the eternal. Yet is it not the less true that fancy, as she is an active, is also under her own laws and in her own spirit a creative faculty? In what manner fancy ambitiously aims at a rivalship with imagination, and imagination stoops to work with the materials of fancy, might be illustrated from the compositions of all eloquent writers, whether in prose or verse, and chiefly from those of our own country. Scarcely a page of the impassioned parts of Bishop Taylor's works can be opened that shall not afford examples. Referring the reader to these inestimable volumes, I will content myself with placing a conceit, ascribed to Lord Chesterfield, in contrast with a passage from Paradise Lost. The dews of the evening most carefully shun, they are the tears of the sky for the loss of the sun. After the transgression of Adam, Milton, with other appearances of sympathizing nature, thus marks the immediate consequence sky lowered, and, muttering thunder, some sad drops wept at completion of the mortal sin. The associating link is the same in each instance. Dew and rain, not indistinguishable from the liquid substance of tears, are employed as indications of sorrow. A flash of surprise is the effect in the former case, a flash of surprise and nothing more, for the nature of things does not sustain the combination. In the latter, the effects from the act, of which there is this immediate consequence and visible sign, are so momentous that the mind acknowledges the justice and reasonableness of the sympathy in nature so manifested, and the sky weeps drops of water as with human eyes, as, quote, earth had before trembled from her entrails, and nature given a second groan, end quote. Finally, I will refer to Cotton's Ode Upon Winter, 
an admirable composition though stained with some peculiarities of the age in which he lived for a general illustration of the characteristics of fancy the middle part of this ode contains a most lively description of the entrance of winter with his retinue as a palsied king and yet a military monarch advancing for conquest with his army the several bodies of which and their arms and equipments are described with a rapidity of detail and a profusion of fanciful comparisons which indicate on the part of the poet extreme activity of intellect and a correspondent hurry of delightful feeling winter retires from the foe into his fortress where a magazine of sovereign juice is cellared in liquor that will the siege maintain should phoebus ne'er return again though myself a water-drinker i cannot resist the pleasure of transcribing what follows as an instance still more happy of fancy employed in the treatment of feeling than in its preceding passages the poem supplies of her management of forms tis that that gives the poet rage and thaws the gelid blood of age matures the young restores the old and makes the fainting coward bold it lays the careful head to rest calms palpitations in the breast renders our lives misfortune sweet then let the chill scirocco blow and gird us round with hills of snow or else go whistle to the shore and make the hollow mountains roar whilst we together jovial sit careless and crowned with mirth and wit where though bleak winds confine us home our fancies round the world shall roam we'll think of all the friends we know and drink to all worth drinking to and having drunk all thine and mine we rather shall want healths than wine but where friends fail us we'll supply our friendships with our charity men that remote in sorrows live shall by our lusty brimmers thrive we'll drink the wanting into wealth and those that languish into health the afflicted into joy the oppressed into security and rest the worthy in disgrace shall find favour return again more kind and in restraint who stifled lie shall taste the air of liberty the brave shall triumph in success the lover shall have mistresses poor unregarded virtue prays and the neglected poet bays thus shall our healths do others good whilst we ourselves do all we would for freed from envy and from care what would we be but what we are when i sate down to write this preface it was my intention to have made it more comprehensive but thinking that i ought rather to apologize for detaining the reader so long i will here conclude End of section 28